Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Today, Kerry and I are joined by Theo Davis-Lewis to discuss his new Spectator article following his recent interview with First Minister Mark Drakeford. Hello, Theo. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Pleasure as always, mate. Um, so, you, like I said, you've recently conducted this interview with Mark Drakeford. Before we go into the interview uh, per se, can you talk a little bit about how impressive you think the Labour victory was in the recent Senate election? Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to forget, isn't it? Because we've had, what is it now, like, you know, six weeks or whatever's gone by since the election was, I think everyone's had their analysis. And, and people forget, obviously, what really has happened over the last six weeks or what happened in that election, which was quite historic, really. And I think lots of commentators like me probably thought the Welsh Labour Party were going to be the largest party, but probably didn't expect them to gain uh, a seat didn't expect Plaid Cymru to do as badly as they did in that sense. But the Welsh Labour election victory, I think, has certainly surprised, especially Conservatives, you know, that I've spoken to. And it is very impressive. And if you look at the, the Wales Governance Centre analysis of it, and, you know, the Welsh election study, it shows that it was an election won by Mark Drakeford. It was won by Welsh Labour, obviously going to italicise, put that in bold, the Welsh bit, uh, which people obviously still resonate with they still resonate with what the message of the party is so remarkable election victory for them uh 22 years goes on next year will be a century of labor dominance in wales i mean that's completely unparalleled not only here in britain obviously but um around europe as well but do you think theo you know while it was a labor victory in uh wales it was a kind of incumbent government victory from all the nations of the UK, those that were managing COVID in whatever elections they were holding at the time, tended to do well. The SNP in Scotland and the local elections in England, we saw the Conservatives do well. Would it be fair to say it was an incumbent victory? I think so. But then again, you go back to what Mark Drake had actually told me was that incumbency doesn't necessarily deliver victory. I mean, he gave the example of Donald Trump, which isn't actually in the interview, but you know, in the in the transcript, uh, you know, looking back over it, you know, incumbency doesn't always favour you if you don't do things right. And I think that's the mantra of looking at what's happened across, you know, those governments, you know, across Scotland, England, and Wales. Generally, they're probably looked upon favourably in their own populations than we would perhaps look at Boris Johnson here in Wales. You know, he's very popular, especially because of the vaccine rollout. And this idea that Mark Drakeford has kept Wales safe, even though the figures across the UK generally are pretty poor compared to some of the uh, countries our size across the world. But that, that idea, you know, they kept Wales safe throughout the pandemic. It's, they're still talking about it now. Uh, and I think the communitarian approach is certainly much more favourable than what we've seen. It's a slight difference, really, with what's happening in Westminster. But again, you know, like you say, it is it is an incumbent government. That's one. And obviously there was that, I wouldn't say huge controversy, because I don't think we ever get really huge controversies in Welsh politics. But there was that slight annoyance and frustration from the Conservatives and Plaid Cymru that Mark Drakeford is using his briefings like a dictatorial master talking to the Welsh nation a week before or a few days before polling day. And at the end of the day, clearly people knew who Mark Drakeford was and that made a massive difference because they liked him. So, um, yeah, I think I think you're spot on there, Kerry. So coronavirus had a bit to play with your interview as well, obviously, because you, you met with Mark just before he had this uh, summit with Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon and Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill. Talk to us a little bit about the circumstances of the interview and, and how it all came about. 
Well, yeah, it was just it was just after. I mean, I literally, I think it was like an hour or two after the COVID summit. But uh, and obviously, the first minister does a lot of interviews. Essentially, you know, he speaks to Welsh media all the time, just press conferences. But I think they wanted to do the team there. Welsh government, Welsh Labour Party wanted to do an interview. I think with a publication which you know they think is read by those in London, read by those in power. So I think it was the conversations were obviously going on for a couple of weeks about it. More just the logistics, to be honest, because it was very hard to find time. My diary is obviously very clear, but the first minister's isn't. Uh, it was going on for a few weeks and then obviously settled perfectly uh, on this date um, just after the COVID summit. And I think really for him now, the first minister's got you know, what, two, three years is one thing we'll talk about, obviously, is legacy. But he's got two or three years left before he retires. And that isn't a lot of time to communicate what you want to do to get things done to deliver. And I think he realises that. And there's a the impression I get from people I speak to is that there is so much confidence from the First Minister. And when I met him, he's very, very confident, uh, which I, you, you don't always get from politicians. You know, they, 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 there's an aura from him as a politician, which obviously you don't see on the surface, so to speak, in terms of he doesn't come across like a, a dominant political figure, just physically. Uh, but it, just the way he was speaking, you know, how he, a very calculated politician. It, it, it was clear that after that election victory, six weeks afterwards, or, you know, four or five weeks afterwards, you know, he had this buoyancy that he wanted to go and speak to somebody like me, who will obviously ask, you know, difficult questions, uh, awkward questions for him but have absolutely no fear at all when, when he's asked them. He's very, very good at answering questions, like a politician. And, I know, and I've interviewed quite a lot of politicians over the, in my very, very brief career. And I think he's the most difficult I've ever had to interview, actually, because he doesn't, you know, I try and catch him out on some questions, not in a, not in a gotcha kind of way, but I'm kind of looking for a, yeah, a very sort of probing, robust response. And I kind of get halfway there and I mean it sort of sums up the history of wheels isn't it where it's half, one one leg in one leg out it's not like committed totally so um and when I interviewed him two years ago it was, it was in Oxford and nobody knew who he was you know I didn't really I can't confess that I knew everything about Mark Drakeford back then in the summer of 2019 and I and I sort of joked with him you know beforehand when I handed over some dahlia tubers from my mother's market garden which I'm you know very happy to admit that my, my, my mother is a super fan of Mark Drakeford so she said she wouldn't take me to the train station unless I brought those dahlias with me uh, so you know I did say to him I bet the FT didn't turn up with this so you know two years ago is a long time six weeks is a long time in politics you know a week is a long time in politics but yeah you know this interview how it came about glad I glad that he did it because I think this is what we need more of of politicians is to actually get someone who's a, I mean, an interviewer who's willing to listen and to let them articulate it, but also cut across them when, you know, they need to be challenged as well. I mean, we, we talked about this yesterday when we had, a, we had a quick chat about how he chooses every word. So a quick chat, one... it was about an hour long. We could have just yeah, recorded that. <laughs> I'm just um... repeating my lines from yesterday. <laughs> but no, he's very, he's very good at that, isn't he? He picks every word so carefully but he makes it come across as if it's completely natural i think that's probably the best the best political interviewees are are, are like that um talking about the interview in, in that you talk about the plan he has for a national conversation about the constitution in the past again not only yesterday but in our previous episodes with you Theo, we've talked about how labor tried to play both its nationalist and its unionist wings at the same time. How successfully do you think they'll be able to do that in the future? Well, right now, they're doing it very successfully because I think 
if you look at the data, they've obviously got you know a decent number of members and voters that support independence and martial independence is still you know it's a mainstream political issue now but i don't think it's on the minds of everyone you know around the country but it's it's there it's not it's not abnormal to talk about it and that's quite a big step they've just successfully done that in this election even again though it wasn't a major issue but i think as i you know say in the interview not just on the general constitutional point where do they stand it's more how do they react to events i think it's going to be really really difficult for them actually in the next 12 to 18 months i don't think it's going to threaten their power at all i think welsh labor i mean i think i wrote a piece for the national just after they won and that essentially said that welsh labor i really don't see how they lose power for a very very long time because there's just no opposition for them but this issue of the constitution it, it does threaten to really destabilise the party, I think, especially depending on what happens in Scotland. I don't think, you know, the, the likes of the Labour for Indy Wales, um, you know, obviously have good campaigners internally. And they certainly, you know, alongside Plaid Cymru, the other pressure group we haven't mentioned, uh, they've certainly influenced Labour direction on things like second homes, which they half of Labour members are probably too frightened to talk about for years. Uh, because of the, the sort of insinuations of what, what that comes across as. But then they are going to have factions, they still have factions within their own party. I mean, Hiraith is arguably a part of that as well, is driving this conversation to take a more proactive view on the constitution. I think the big issue is for them is, is what happens in Scotland. What is Drakeford's position after Scotland possibly leaves? Even when Scotland has a referendum, are we going to sit on our hands? during this referendum like we did in 2014 I think the answer is probably yes uh, but I think then obviously you'll have a conversation about okay what does Wales do next and I think it doesn't threaten their power base but again it's just that question what will what will Labour's role, role be in the future of Wales uh, they've navigated it on so many occasions and I think that will be the most challenging issue for Welsh Labour is if we're asked the question independence will their British oriented members be prepared to argue for Welsh independence in whatever way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm actually sure about that. Well, you mentioned the, and you mentioned in the article about the Internal Market Act, Theo, and uh, the Welsh government have got legal proceedings or uh, from April, and you know, also touch upon the Shared Prosperity Fund. How do you think these are going to impact upon the union? Well, I mean, it's. It's already impacting on it in the sense that the strains between Cardiff and London and for people I speak to both in obviously Cardiff and in London, in Whitehall, in SW1, I've never seen such poor relations, and maybe on a symbolic macro political level, because obviously collaboration happens all the time on certain things. But on those issues, I've never seen such poor relations in my I mean, I'm 23, so I haven't got the arc of history like you have, Kerry, but I um, obviously look at it from the likes of Vaughan Gething, who says, you know, it's undermining devolution, you know, Drakeford says in this interview. Uh, and again, to go back to Matt's point on the consistent messaging, for days afterwards, um, he was saying saying the line, stealing powers and stealing uh, money from the Sinez because of the impact of the Shared Prosperity Fund, the levelling up fund, all these kinds, of, they're all kind of the same thing. That is really not just frustrating the Welsh government, but the Scottish government, because they very fact, you know, factually correct they, they they are frustrated that they don't have the same powers as they had pre-brexit and you know eu regional funding now obviously is controlled differently simon hart says that the uk government in wales is going to be more active than ever 
And the argument, of course, from the Welsh government is, well, that's not people who voted for six weeks ago. And also, that's not really contingent on what we've had over the last two decades, two referendums supporting a Welsh parliament making decisions. So it's, it's straining relationships. And this is what I think the first minister touches upon uh, in certain languages he says to me in the interview, you know, talking about this muscular unionism, which is tipped over into kind of unilateralism from the prime minister down. That's what Cardiff sees happening. And in the consciousness of consciousness of people, I don't know whether that really has an impact. The unionists in, in Whitehall say it doesn't. But I think, they are again, the Welsh government are very, very good in communicating this message very clearly that, you know, stealing powers and stealing money, for, you know, that kind of line from Mark Drake does hit you home. Uh, the only difficult bit is, is when they ask him uh, what powers are being stolen. It's obviously a bit more complicated than that. Um, so it's straining the relationship, not only with Scotland, which is, basically being pushed away from the union as it is, but with the unionist government in Cardiff. And people need to remember that, and I have to emphasise that to you, that people should realise in SW1 that Mark Drakeford is a unionist. And if you read the interview, that'll come through. And I do point to the fact that some people don't think he is, but if you understand anything of Welsh politics, you know that he is a unionist. And just by asking for more powers on things like policing and justice doesn't make you a nationalist. And I think that's what... Is really really troubling if you are if you are a unionist and if you're you know if your head's screwed on properly that this is really inflaming the tensions between Cardiff, Edinburgh, London. Belfast obviously a completely different issue, which is probably even more dangerous actually, not just for society in Northern Ireland but just for the union as well. So I, I do wonder how the actions and the rhetoric from you know the likes that push the Internal Market Act, the Shared Prosperity Fund, how it how it joins up with their rhetoric on how they don't want to make the union a binary choice between unionists and nationalists, because that's what exact that's exactly what it does, Kerry, and it spells only trouble, I think, for the union in the, in the next few years. We're, we're talking about unionism there between uh, Mark Drakeford's unionism and the unionism of Boris Johnson. Where do you fundamentally see the differences between how they view the union? I think there's two things. First of all, in terms of how they want to save the union, if we want to just if we talk about it in that sense, in terms of saving the union, because you know the union is in is in crisis. I think people generally acknowledge that, or we're heading into a crisis. They both want to save the union. That's the first point. So they're not too dissimilar there. What the first minister has said over the last few weeks is the fact they got a different recipe. And Mark Drakeford's unionism is you know kind of giving home rule for Wales, radical federalism, which we'll talk about. And then Mark Boris Johnson is. They might not say it, but it's about centralising power. And that not, isn't necessarily where everyone is, I don't think, across, across Wales and Scotland. I don't think that's what the Celtic nations want to see. Uh, but in terms of how they define the union, it's a very interesting question. Uh, and you guys will know this anyway, and lots of your listeners will. In terms of the Welsh Labour tradition of unionism, I think it captures where most, most people across Wales have been historically. That's why they've been so successful. You know, it's been an economic and social partnership. You know, they've you know, genuinely invested in it as an idea, most of the majority probably supporting a monarchy, key institutions, a redistributive economy, which I think that's in terms of the, the Drakeford socialism. I know there's been quite a lot of angst recently. People don't want Drakeford to be viewed as a socialist, but I, I, still, kind of, I still kind of see him as a socialist. That kind of idea of the Nye Bevan unionism that, you know, obviously was, had a different view of devolution altogether than the first minister, you know, you could value the redistributive economy. And I think that's the big difference with from uh, Boris Johnson. He might implicitly believe it, but I think the Boris 
uh, and, and the Conservative Party. Lots of them now actually don't necessarily value the union as much as they do other political projects. I mean, I think now because Brexit's got done, again, coming out of COVID, the union will be in the spotlight again. I think for them, it's more, it's difficult to define in terms of uh, the Conservative vision for it now, apart from seeing it as a unitary state. And I think that's a very, very difficult square to circle, essentially, because I think it, there's no no one's definition of the union is wrong. But it's it's that it's that issue of their idea of the UK as probably, you know, London commanding over different capitals and different parliaments is might be in tune with what the public want in England, maybe, but not necessarily elsewhere. So to go back to the, the crux of your question, you've got two different recipes for solving the problems they have, and they probably value different elements of it. I think the Union Jack kind of symbolism is where the Prime Minister stands, and the First Minister probably, you know, like most people, uh, people like me, and I'm not really, I'm not really fussed by the kind of Union Jack waving, you know, let's all get behind Team GB kind of empty rhetoric kind of unionism. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a shame because we've kind of, we've, I think we've conflated different points you know to do with britain and what the uk stands for because you know i think wales actually as a, as a claim obviously to have that ancient connection with the britons the welsh language is spoken obviously in, in scotland northern england i mean that's the kind of romantic britishness that i still have a feeling towards to be honest with you and i think most welsh people do but that's the point is that i think it's it's not only the two leaders unionism britishness identity that are different but it's actually i think different parts of the UK as well as value it differently. The English votes for English laws is a great example that inadvertently that actually is going to have a disastrous effect on English voters because of the fact that the Scots will be, and the Welsh will be perceived to be interfering and, you know, blocking stuff. And obviously, if you look at the opinion polls, the English studies that have been taken, the English, gen English people generally are resent the fact that the Scots have so much power and have given, you know, have so much undue influence and that's not going to solve this. So, um, to, to basically answer the question you haven't asked me yet, Kerry, but two different concepts of unionism there uh, and everything associated with it. Um, but I, yeah, I got the sense from the interview as well. I couldn't believe like how stark it was and actually how, you know, the conviction that comes through. It wasn't it's not it's not political point scoring. You could have said that a year ago, maybe you could have said that if you if you wanted to be sceptical. But it's really not. It's fundamental differences on the union as it stands. But there's so much in that to unpick. And. I think I think it's best laid out by asking about Drakeford's favorite solution to this problem, which is oh, his no. radical federalism uh, shtick, right? Yeah, you, know, yeah, yeah. You, you you mentioned all these things about the conception by a lot of conservatives of the, of the UK as a unitary state, the ten the uh, the tendency at the moment for UK conservatives to be a centralizing rather than a devolving force. You talk about their habit for using things like evil piecemeal ad hoc solutions to problems that require a more sort of holistic uh, solution. Surely these, these all point to just how difficult it will be for the UK to ever adopt a radical federal model, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, and, I, and I said that to the to the first minister. I don't I think it's so undeliverable. It's never going to happen. I don't think with the Conservative government anyway. And I really don't see how they would implement it. And I there's one point in the interview that I um, say in terms of the reform of the UK and I ask 
the first minister and, I, and, and you know, he says he wants a radical federal model. He talks about sovereignty, which I hope you can talk about a bit as well, which is really interesting, actually. And it was for the people I spoke to in The Spectator, actually, they were very struck by his ideas, which is one point to, to come back to. But on radical federalism, I said to him, you know, what, you know, what, how, how can we do it? And, you know, he was very, very good because he was saying, you know, Scotland has a pretty big card of the referendum play, Northern Ireland, the knowledge that comes from there, you know, that kind of, you know, creates tension and, you know, leads to action. And in Wales, um, we have the quality of the argument. And I actually interrupted him and I said, well, that, and I sort of laughed and I said, oh, that's not much, is it? And he was like, well, you know, it ought to, it ought to be haunted. And I just thought, oh, I, just, I you know, at that point, my my heart dropped, actually, um, and my jaw dropped uh, in the interview, because I was so disappointed in the answer that we had the quality of the argument. And I thought, really, to be honest with you, I thought that's the great tragedy of Wales, the thought that we can change things with creative thought. You know, radical federalism, conceptually, as an academic idea to the problems that we have, you'd argue maybe it makes sense, give everyone more autonomy, let them run their own affairs, but maintain it as a UK brand. I'd argue that makes sense. But in terms of the delivery of it, Matt, I, don't, I just don't know how you do it. I, and, and, and Starmer, does Starmer support radical federalism? I don't think he does. And he's, and he's never going to get into government anyway. So, I mean, what, what do you think, guys? I, I mean, I, I know you guys talk about that. Those are probably the two most mentioned words on this podcast. So, But I just don't know. <laughs> Have you heard anything from anyone? Like, you know, you guys speak to the Labour folk often. I mean, has anything changed your mind from thinking, oh, it's quite difficult to deliver, or actually there's conversations happening? Uh, I guess, well, just putting something in a manifesto doesn't make it true, does it? Yeah, we sort of um, every party, can't you? <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I think that is, it's definitely will form the basis of the next UK Labour uh, general election manifesto when we spoke to Stephen Bush, someone with his ear pressed firmly to the ground in UK Labour circles. He seemed to think it would definitely be part of the, mm. uh, the process, especially considering how much influence someone like Mark Drakeford will wield over the policy making process when it comes to issues like Wales and the constitution. He can't see how it wouldn't be part of the manifesto. The bigger question is how do you turn that manifesto commitment into action when it seems ever uh, harder for the UK Labour Party to form a majority government in Westminster? So that's the, I suppose that's what the rub comes down to, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think you look at what Gordon Brown's been saying, and I think just to say as well on Gordon Brown, obviously he doesn't have the best record on devolution, but his opinions on where we are in the UK are actually, I actually really value them. I think they're really good. I like his articles and so on. He's obviously working on the constitutional review and whatever. Uh, but again, I mean, to, to go back to something that probably wasn't discussed in the interview, but we've talked about before, you know, whether it's actually too late for radical federalism, you know, the Scots, would they ever go for that? I mean, maybe they would. I mean, I think it'll all come down to the fact that they, they, they'll have to have a referendum. I think there's no question. And actually the pressure is on Nicola Sturgeon to do that now because she's going to have to call it. And most people don't really want it to happen in the pandemic. And this pandemic is prolonging probably until the end of the year. Because uh, I think they were sort of mooting perhaps spring next year for, for a referendum. But interestingly, the intelligence of, of Mark Drakeford, you know, the very sort of considered questions that uh, the fantastic interviewer was asking him uh, about, about Welsh independence. You know, he did say, you know, if there was a Welsh independence referendum, you put independence on the ballot paper, you put uh, staying in the UK as it is, and then you put the case for a reformed UK uh, on the ballot paper. I mean, that's never going to happen, but I mean, it's very, it just shows you where he is. I think he, he's, he's a unionist, he's a diehard unionist, 
I think, and again, something we'll chat about in terms of where what what's that red line if there is one. But for him, he really does want to make he kind of wants to make it better. I mean, Simon Hart says this unionism on Mark Drakeford's terms, uh, and the Welsh government isn't Wales and all these things. But you could say exactly the same about the UK government and Britain. It's very very difficult. I think to go back to your original question, very difficult to see how they implement it. You know, is all this you know reforming our union paper? And the constitutional conversation we're going to have in this in the next five years is it all academic? It wasn't back in the one Wales government when we had the the, 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 the consultation on further powers for the synod, but that was not nowhere near what we're talking about now in terms of complexity. So yeah, we'll have we'll have to see. So you mentioned Gordon Brown, Scotland, and independence. There are comments in this article that you've written that I think are in stark contrast to a lot of the murmurings we've heard from Mark previously. And I think it's why everyone should obviously go and read it when it's out. Because when he was with you, he talked about how even if Scotland were to leave, there's a way that it could work, Wales and England as a UK, a United Kingdom of England and Wales. Now, in the past, when he's been asked about Scotland leaving, he said we'd have, you know, we'd have to consider our options which everyone I I don't know if it was just me being naive everyone sort of took to mean that we would have to have a serious conversation about whether we stayed part of the United Kingdom as a United Kingdom of England and Wales but this to me sounds much more like if that were to happen if Scotland were to leave he would look to find any way possible to make England and Wales as a United Kingdom work is that what you got from his comments I think I think it's difficult because, you know, he did say, you know, it's very uncomfortable for him to think about. But then he did say as a caveat, well, actually, you could it's not I think the I think the the word to use was something like it's not impossible to design the relationship that would work to Wales' advantage. And again, the standing up for Wales, no matter the cost. I mean, even we're going into a union with England. I mean, oh, God, honestly. I think it's 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 hard to I think he genuinely meant it when he doesn't he says you know he's very it's very uncomfortable to think about but again I, I think it is that that inner reluctance from the first minister you know what is the first minister's opposite what's his kind of what's the political ideo- ideology that really you know sort of repugs him you know what does he really find repugnant what does he not like and it's probably Toryism and the other bit is probably nationalism and I think you know whichever one you put in front of the other you know it's it's difficult to be honest. I think he did an interview last year with Nick Robinson on the Political Thinking podcast, where he mentioned like you know his upbringing and how he never was attracted to nationalism in that sense. And I think those comments on the UK of England and Wales, which the likes of Gavin Esler uh, have war- have not warned about, they predicted. Uh, I think the first minister genuinely wouldn't find that comfortable. But I think it shows you a bit more that he. I don't know whether this was in his thinking or not, because I didn't ask him, but whether. You know the, the Labour Party in Wales. Um, we say it's pro devolution. You know, you know, wants further powers. Obviously, it kind of varies as to who wants what. But there is obviously that wing, and certainly the Parliamentary Labour Party in Westminster, thinking of the likes of Chris Bryant, um, who delights in telling us that Glyndwr didn't have a parliament uh, in Machanlleth. That see, um, you know, Wales's distinctiveness or Wales generally a bit more different to. To the likes of Mark Drakeford, who I think is much more sympathetic to the cause of Wales. But again, I, th- yeah, I think you're, I think you're right in terms of the way you asked that question. 
I think his unionism actually is much stronger than people have realized. People on social media, actually a bit of insight from social social media for once, uh, that I see some of the bile on my social media feed. But some of it, to be fair, for some of the nationalists, is actually quite insightful in terms of they try, they, they're crying out uh, because everyone loves Mark Drakeford, obviously, and when he's wearing the sort of hat when Wales are playing football and stuff, uh, his lovely granddad and whatever. You know, he is really committed to the UK state, the British state, and people don't realise that in SW1, and they don't realise that, I think, in some parts of the Labour Party. But again, I, I think it reflects probably where we are. I think, you know, it's the, the national story is going to be played out through Mark Drakeford over the next three years. And I don't think if you... I don't know if you are, if you asked a referendum now to vote with the UK of England and Wales. I don't know where... I don't know what you think. I don't know... I mean, I would vote to leave. I wouldn't want to be in the UK of England and Wales. I'm an Anglophile. And I live in England and I've got an English girlfriend. I've got to say that very quietly in here. She's going to come in and burst to the door in a second. But, you know, I'm an Anglophile, but I just don't think that's practical. So I don't know how people in Wales would feel about it. I don't think there's ever been polling on it. And maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but I think, actually, we might be a bit surprised because I don't think it'll be as a, a landslide for Welsh independence as we think. It's genuinely a really interesting one. And I think those were the comments. Um, and I actually, speaking to the, the team that was sort of editing the piece, there's lots in there in the interview that actually didn't make it. I think the piece is about, to, to ball, it's about 1,800 words. And um, there's so much more that isn't in there. Uh, but what I think people find interesting in London that I speak to um, that have seen the interview it, are the comments on the UK of England and Wales because, and this is really interesting, obviously, they don't understand that it would be a terrifying thing for most people that I'm sorry, I say most people again. I mean, for some people, it would be a terrifying nightmare to have a UK of England and Wales. And the English are kind of like, well, what you, why would why would it be? Why would it be a nightmare? It'd be lovely to have you as a playground. I mean, what do you mean? I, people don't get it. And I think that's another interesting thing, just in terms of our how we are perceived um, around around the UK and in particular in England, that a UK of England and Wales, you know, I think um I think it's the likes of you know, Simon Brooks of Talked about us, talked about us being a, a playground, not only for tourists, but you know, for for others as well. So, yeah, we'll have to see. But again, I, I'd like to agree with the first minister actually when he says, you know, well, that's a very uncomfortable thing. But um, it probably is impossible. I'll disagree with him that to design a relation in Wales' advantage. I don't think it'll ever work. How how do you think the views the first minister has expressed would be shared in the wider Labour Party? The you know, you know, where do you think the party as a whole is in? in this regard? It's a, it's a good question because I think if you look at the, you know, the debate around um, criminal justice and policing, it probably shows to you that, you know, not, not everyone in the party will support further devolution. I mean, not even the first minister in terms of things like welfare. Uh, you know, that's a very contentious issue in, in the party. But again, I, I think it's probably to show that I think the first minister actually is, it's probably emblematic of where most of the party is on most issues actually because he's certainly to the left of Carwin Jones uh, he's probably more in the mold obviously as as the late Roger Morgan who obviously they are kind of carbon copies in some ways um, in terms of their political ideologies and I think the first minister does kind of reflect a lot of the the party's views and that's why I think he's such a popular leader not just because he wins elections because that certainly helps um, but he, he's a very very popular leader the interesting thing obviously is uh, who in that top three or four in the cabinet are with the first minister in terms of what he thinks I mean the likes of Jeremy Miles, Aline Morgan, Vaughan Gething I think they're all different to what the first minister thinks 
on some of the big issues, including um, including the constitution. Uh, but I think there's probably never been a, a Welsh leader with such a hold over their party. And you, you could sort of compare it in some ways to Sturgeon in the SNP, because there's, there's debates with her, in the sense people don't agree with her independence strategy, the kind of Salmonites who think treat it as a different approach. Because on the big issues, there will always be division. And I mentioned Chris Bryant, you know, he's not going to agree with the First Minister, I don't think, on some of the big constitutional questions uh, and the interpretation of Welsh history um, and that sort of thing. But I would argue that the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, has a real hold over Welsh Labour, and in a very positive way. I don't think, you know, this, I agree with you totally, it's a broad church, and the Mick Antony kind of discussion of the constitutional future shows that it's certainly in the Welsh Labour CNF party, if I, you know, you know, the CNF group, they're all on board. It might, it obviously might vary with what's happening in that Westminster group. You, you mentioned the, when you when you said uh, the comparison was Sturgeon, I mm. actually thought you were going to go with Stalin, which was, uh, no, which would have been not. interesting. But yeah. Taking us a little bit further away, one of the interesting lines I saw in the article was that the First Minister suggested that Labour came within a whisker of being the largest party in the UK in 2017. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's not really the case. You know, depending on your perspective, you can view Jeremy Corbyn's uh, election uh, in that year. But Labour actually ended up with nearly 60 seats below the Conservatives. So it's not really a whisker. They did lose and they lost quite convincingly. It was... It was when you add in the other parties that it became very tight in the position. Do you think there's anything we can take from Mark's view that that was a successful 2017 election for Labour and how that might be perceived in the wider party? Yeah, it's about, I think it's quite an easy one. Since I think it's about policy. If, you know, he says that Corbyn had a very attractive policy offer and he actually, he says, he sort of um, says in the interview, you know, we were a Labour party that, uh, along the lines of saying, essentially, we were a Labour Party that stood stood for things and knew what we were standing for, and uh, we weren't saying things like, you know, we're just better than the other lot. We're actually a Labour Party. We we'll make this country better. And again, I think it's again on that particular section, and, I, and probably to reiterate to your listeners, there's lots in here that many people would have read before. Uh, what I find interesting and the value of these kinds of interviews is that you get it all in a kind of in, in one sort of narration, and it's all there, and all these ideas are in one. Uh, but the new bits on, you know, you mentioned the UK, England, and Wales. Labour is another one where he essentially, you know, saying that Corbyn was a was a was a good leader, and the manifesto in 2017, he said specifically to me, you know, he's very proud stand on that manifesto and I think he as he said to the mirror as well you know Keir Starmer and didn't say it explicitly but was saying essentially that you know you've got to know what you stand for you've got to be distinct and this is what most commentators like me have picked up on that Welsh Labour knows exactly what it stands for and that sometimes isn't really a definite position either which is so how how brilliant they are and how and how the electorate, you know, are not as complex as we all think. It's just, it's a very fluid kind of, you know, talk about the Welsh identity of Welsh Labour. Most people probably wouldn't be able to define that anyway, apart from saying clear red water. You know, it's a very fluid kind of, it's just the perception, it's the PR of it as well. Uh, and I think Drakeford on that question was more genuinely on the substance, was very clear that he, again, we need to remember he's, and not, not everyone agrees with this, but he is a, certainly on the left wing, certainly, I think he's a socialist, socialist of the Welsh stripe. I think if I'm right, I think he and Kevin Brennan described uh, Rodri Morgan as that in the introduction to the um, autobiography by Rodri, which I'm actually rereading, which is very, very good. And I think that's, what, and I think that's where Mark Drakeford is, socialist of the Welsh tribe, which is very distinct from 
what British Labour has been, you know, was totally different to what they were during the Blair years with Gordon Brown, a bit different with Miliband. Now, I just don't think anyone knows what Keir Starmer stands for. And I, I think the First Minister, although he likes the, le- the leader of the Labour Party in London, they are very two distinct leaders of two distinct parties. Uh, and that is the thing that is troubling them. You know, we're speaking a few hours after the, the by-election where the Liberal Democrats, uh, a Welsh-speaking candidate, by the way, which is uh, brilliant. So obviously I was supporting supporting her in the by-election. And Labour had, I think, I think it was his worst, I think it was Labour's worst by-election result ever. Oh, and in a, for certain months of certain, certain years. And I think that says it all, really, in a kind of southern seat, quite affluent, but where they used to do well, you know, historically, obviously they used to win. Uh, and this probably captures the identity crisis they're having. Um, but that 2017 kind of section of the interview about Drakeford, it reminds people that he was on Corbyn's side and they were friends and they both love allotments as well. So, I mean, that's that's enough to bond any two men together, isn't it? There's going to be certain people in the Labour Party who are going to read that and see it as a kind of, it was a successful 2017 campaign and that that whisker, it, it wasn't a whisker, and that I know is going to upset certain people in the party, but it's kind of that revisionism of that campaign is going to be portrayed in a successful light when they're probably trying to move away from that. But uh... well, it's happening all the time, though, isn't it? Because even like the, um, I, love, I love it on social media again when I go and glance on it, um, when they say, you know, I think it was the line was that, well, um, Corbyn actually kept Hartlepool. Um, you know why? You know what? You know I was kind of like, oh come on, guys. You know it's just there's no rigor in that analysis whatsoever. It's completely different. I think you're right. I was thinking at the time. You know it was very strange kind of thing to say, but I think it caught more than anything for me that you know I think he really believed in the Corbyn project, and I think it was probably emblematic of a lot of the Corbyn supporters in a bubble where they thought, well, we've got the best ideas. Why are we not winning? And then obviously some of them still think, oh, we are, we were winning. It's just we didn't have enough time. And then obviously the 2019 elections explained away as a Brexit election. And, you know, some of it, some of that is true. But I think you're right. I mean, not many, um, you know, in Wales, fortunately for Mark Drakeford, we've kind of forgotten about the psychodrama of Jeremy Corbyn over the Labour Party because Mark Drakeford was, you know, kind of a key supporter of that when he had the whip withdrawn Jeremy Corbyn. It was very kind of, difficult for the first minister to say anything but we have fortunate for him we have moved on from it so i don't think you'll have any other plucky journalists or commentators carry asking him about it but it's a shame actually because it's probably one of the most interesting periods in british political history and our first minister was really kind of sat um you know side by side with corbyn certainly on the policy on the policy stuff anyway We'll get into uh, Labour's fascination with glorious defeat in another episode, I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah, on on Drakeford, his legacy, looking forward now, do you think there's any chance that his legacy will be anything but his response to the COVID-19 pandemic? If I'm honest, no, because I don't think we have enough of a civic society and and a media, really, to kind of sustain another... to, to tell a story, really, about Mark Drakeford. I don't think... You know, we we have leaders that really leave a massive impression, certainly on policy. Listen, you know, in Wales, there were things that Roderick Morgan's government did, you know, obviously with Roderick Morgan dying you know, a few years ago, there will be things that we would remember Roderick Morgan for doing, you know, things like, and Welsh Labour for doing, like the prescriptions is one thing I think about the environmental policy and plastic bags. But really, you know, I don't think 
we really go in that in that much depth in the public consciousness uh, with saying as politicians yeah I mean I think clear red water will be Rodri Morgan's legacy Carolyn Jones might obviously have a slightly difficult one because of the events over the last year or so with his is his leadership and he studied the ship generally around over like eight or nine years with Mark Drakeford I think because he was a leader throughout the pandemic that's what makes great leaders in history and Anthony Selden you know wrote a fantastic book on uh, the prime ministers and sort of 300 years and you to be a great prime minister you need to have circumstances obviously the qualities right place at the right time and I obviously wrote for you know my friends in here right a few days before the election that Mark Draper was the right leader at the right time and I think that is true go back to the fact that obviously the figures in Wales are not as strong as somewhere like New Zealand uh but that's a, yeah so uh, it's the other side of the world it won't be play, it won't be played into Welsh Welsh history I think that's what we will remember him for personally I think that's what we will remember him for depending what happens with the union there might be a chance in the next three years that something really kicks off and if Scotland leaves in the next three years who knows you know where what Marshall's position might have to be was he going to be campaigning on a referendum question we might have a referendum in the next three years you just don't know but I think if you, to go back to the interview he identifies covid you know sort of fighting covid as his priority public health and economic sense the constitution is kind of referenced as it's always going to be there climate change is clearly you know i think he's i don't think he's actually in the interview but you know he does say something like you know we've got to do our bit haven't we which i think is such a nice welsh phrase um we will do our bit you know and the other bit the other sort of element of martrick's legacy which is new and yeah, I think it's first come out in this interview, actually, properly and in an articulate way about that. He wants to make Wales, in very generic terms, obviously, wants to make Wales, you know, a place where you can make a future, that people can start their families and not have to leave. And well, over the weekend, I know Sunday politics in Wales have that have a segment really on you know the brain drain and, and graduates leaving. Obviously, that's something that's interesting to me and the work that I do with Dorogan, but it's more the fact that that's a new thing that first minister could he could he change anything on the brain drain making Wales a better place to work there's certainly a lot to do I think that's probably much more impactful in terms of the results of seeing something than climate change because climate change will be a sort of 10-15 year project which first I don't think Drakeford will be totally remembered for and people don't think he's got all the answers either for it but I do think to go back to my first point I think it's going to be very hard for him to be seen as anything other and it's not a bad thing by the way to be seen as anything other than the first minister that was actually ingrained in the public consciousness for good or bad uh the interesting bit obviously for us and I lament it every day uh, when I have nightmares about Welsh politics, is the fact that that wasn't reflected in the Senate election in the sense that we didn't have, you know, 50% turning out um, and compare that to the general election in 2019. I think it was 66% in 2019 that turned out to vote in Wales. And I think that probably shows you the disparity of the attention that was given. The legacy that the First Minister might have is very different to, if we look back now, as the legacy of the Senate. It certainly isn't seen as impactful as as the office of the first minister of Wales, which I think is, I think is a great shame. Do you think there's no temptation in him to try and do something really, I mean, not to say the COVID pandemic isn't a tangible success, it obviously is, but to have something added to the Senate, to get more powers over justice, prisons, policing, probation, more, I know, although he doesn't want them, more welfare powers, to see an increased Senate or a Senate with a different, uh, electoral system it doesn't seem to me like these big 
constitutional changes are, are really what he's focused on now. I agree with that. I don't think he is focused on it, actually. And I, and I say, uh, I think that so the headline of the piece hopefully hasn't changed in the meantime, speaking to you, because I look, you have to edit this out afterwards. I think I call him King of Fortress Wales. And I actually came up with that, by the way. Norman, I, normally I don't write the headline, but I actually came up with that, which I'm very proud of. And uh, he says it in a way of, it, I very, very cheekily turned his words against him, as I always do with everyone. Because uh, I think he said he, did, he didn't want to create a fortress Wales, which was, you know, enclosed in, no one could leave. And I said, well, actually, that's what he's done because he's, you know, he's built up Wales, he closed the borders, you know, he's trying trialling different policy. And I think I, I see him kind of as, you know, the head of this new, new kind of nation now. But I think you're right that he's not focused on the nation building side of things, as I thought he would be. The Sinev... The CNF members issue, I think, is a really, really big one. And I really hope that is the reforms to, to get more CNF members are introduced. I mean, I think I've all, I mean, I'm a very, can be very cheeky in my columns saying, oh, you know, no one is shouting for £12 million a year, more for 30 members or whatever. But we certainly need it. Again, this probably goes back to Kerry's earlier question as to where the Welsh Labour Party sit on it, because obviously it doesn't necessarily mean good things for the Welsh Labour Party, which the First Minister will, will be thinking about. But Again, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt because lots of the pol- in terms of the devolution of powers, that's not necessarily up to him either. And I think you know he has been calling for radical federalism. You know that the manifesto there was a commitment for the devolution, or to, to, I think it, I can't remember the language in the manifesto, but it would have been written as something like campaign or urge because they can't do it themselves. You know things like policing and so on, they have to go with the begging bowl to Westminster. And again, you know, it, it goes back to your orig- our original discussion that there are two different recipes for solving the union. And Mark Drakeford's saying, give us more power, autonomy, distinctiveness, whereas Westminster says no, because they're very, sus- they're very suspicious of that. They don't understand what that means. They don't understand why that would, in some ways, quash any kind of frustration or bubbling sentiment for soft nationalism or growing nationalism. Um, but I, I am, I think, to be very critical, I think that answer about the um, the force of argument, and I think that was what I came back to all the time. The, you know, you said that the Scotland had a massive card to play when they kind of, you know, cajoling with the UK government. We have, we've always relied on the force of argument. And I just thought, I was so disappointed in that answer because it really kind of summed up for me where we are and, I, and I've been genuinely quite concerned over the last year. I mean, how sad am I? They probably, the listeners probably listening, like, what the hell's wrong? You have a normal life. Um, but it is genuinely really concerning to, to see that you know, there's such division between London and Cardiff. And then we are absolutely powerless to do anything about it. I mean, keep, keep campaigning, keep pu- putting it to Westminster, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt if he, if he does properly start calling for stuff, uh, for devolution, uh, further devolution. It's not in, all in his hands. And I think that's a big problem of where we are with the union today. One really super quick question before we wrap. Who's next? Who do you think his replacement will be? And, and what sort of oh, Wales do you think he will leave in his stead for them to take over? I think in terms of the, the Wales Mark Drakeford leads, uh, leaves, I think it's, first of all, interesting, you know, where, when, when is he going to go? Uh, I think his birthday, his 70th birthday is in mid-September. I mean, how, you must think I'm very strange, but I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in mid-September and he wants to go by then. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he'll leave by then. He might go a year before, he might go, you know, next, you know, he might go in the next year. We don't know. Uh, I think he's going he's gonna to leave a Wales, which is far more 
understanding of understands the synod um or, or probably understands the first minister of wales exists more i think there's still much more work to be done in terms of public understanding of the synod how it works local members you know how how that all works but there's there's a definite shift i think in terms of the consciousness between where we were literally 12 months ago and where we are now and i think that's one of the major things and this goes back to your question about will he be remembered for a for being the pandemic first minister the pandemic preveny dog i think then he, he also leaves wales if he gets his way he'll leave it very firmly on the left uh which wales has been for decades you know close to you know well, probably about 150 years really i mean not as Liberals obviously were, were different to where, La where Welsh Labour are, but still cementing that legacy. And probably then that comes into the the next um, the part of my answer uh, on who he leaves leaves it to, because then I think the next leader, as we've discussed before, Matt, will have to be very similar to, to the First Minister in terms of where he is on the political spectrum or where he or she is, I should say, sorry, um, is on the political spectrum, because it could either be, in my view, and I look forward to you pulling this up in um a couple of years uh you know it could be jeremy miles it could be Elena morgan it could be vaughan gething and those are the three there might be you know it might be a dark horse in there i don't think they will just because of how um i don't think they'll be successful anyway but just because of you know who gets the trade union support who gets the membership and how the system works those three are probably the most established um i'd, I'd stick my neck out and probably say it's going to be Elena morgan actually uh because I, I don't think Von Gessing would win. I don't know. I think there's still questions over, um, you know, where he stands on some of the on some of the big issues, whether he's not a Welsh speaker, whether that will influence uh, it. I don't know. I'm not a member of the Welsh Labour Party, um, you know, so I, I can I couldn't comment on it. Uh, but I still think, you know, is he that popular in the country? I don't know. I know he's walked off a couple of interviews before and I didn't like that when he, he did that. So I think there's that kind of perception sometimes, although he's got a huge profile being a health minister, you know, whether the inquiry into COVID next year will wipe him out if he's done bad things. Um, Jeremy Miles is obviously kind of, he's been groomed for a few years to do it. Looks like a leader, quite smart. Um, you know, he's got, he's got all those elements to it as well, like Vaughan Gething. Uh, I think he's probably... The kind of say you probably put your I mean you probably put your money on him at the minute because he kind of is being groomed for it and looks like a leader whereas Vaughan has been touted for years to do it and and went for it last time and didn't win uh, but then I think for me I just think the pressure uh, to get a female leader actually will will probably tip over actually personally I know that was the case last time as well uh, I'd love to see a wheels uh, run by a, a female leader because I think it's disastrous that we haven't had one yet we could say all we want about all female shortlists and, and the, the issues that have sparked internally in some parties. But I think having, you know, female, uh, females in sort of positions of leadership is very important. And it's just very strange that we haven't had one, to be honest, I think it's a bit weird. Uh, and I think she genuinely has, has, has impressed me, to be honest with you, obviously that's reflected in her promotion in the cabinet. They're all three, they're very, they both, they all look the part, they all sound the part really. Um, it depends who's going to have more targets on their back by the time I think it comes to it and who is getting sort of garnering support now. Uh, I think the big issue for all three will be where they stand on the big policy issues, you know, the left wing policy issues, which I don't think they're all, none of them I don't think are that close to Mark Rickford, I don't think in terms of where he is. But I think the next Labour leader, so my final point on the question, the next Labour leader, I think, Welsh Labour leader will be 
the one that has to tackle the, the biggest issues, I think, on you know, to go back to the union. They will have to decide. I mean, Vaughan Gethin this week actually has been coming out very strongly on, on the on the bills and shared prosperity fund stuff. So maybe he's being groomed by Drakeford. This is the this is the this is the copy of you how you speak to Westminster. Maybe he's given him his his, his notes. Uh, but I think they will be the ones that will have to navigate Wales's place in the UK if things go south, further north in in Britain. I think they that that next Welsh Labour leader, uh, he or she, will have to decide the future of Wales and where Welsh Labour sits within it. And right now, if you asked all three, I think you get three very different answers actually um, about where where they would take Wales if Scotland voted to leave or there was a referendum question. Because to be honest with you, I don't think they've even thought about it. So this is the this is the really interesting thing. Um, yeah, so I put my money on I put my money on Lee Morgan, um, but I think the other two, Jeremy and and Vaughan, obviously they're very strong ministers in their own right. They you know they're, they're operate they're political operators, but I think I think the stars from what I hear, I think the stars are aligning for Lee Morgan. So uh, we'll have to see if I'm embarrassed in two years when we when I come back again. Uh, well, Theo, thank you as always for coming to talk to us. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at T Davis Lewis. So please do send me any um, abuse or compliments, which is very rare, actually. So if you'd like to do that, I'd be very pleased. Uh, and, and where's your article going to be tomorrow? Or today, uh, whenever, today whenever it is. I mean, I don't know. When, I mean, it's, it's, on, it's on the Spectator uh, website, which I hope you all read. Obviously, there's lots in there that didn't get in there, which is a shame. So if there's any, any Welsh government advisors, please don't tell me off. But I've done my best to reflect everything. Uh, and thank you, obviously, to the to you guys at Hill Rights. It's been a real pleasure. And also, I will be on, um, apparently, be on Sunday Supplement to talk about this as well, after the First Minister comes on. So it's going to be a massive shouting match. So do do <laughs> tune in. It's going to be, uh, it's going to, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to basically say that all the same things again. So uh, please do tune in for that. Well, as I said, Theo, pleasure as always. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today on Here I, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.